Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and this week's message is from our series, Kingdom Come. Today, we're going to be studying Ezekiel chapter 42 with Kurt Katsorki. Kurt, what do you feel is important to know as we study this chapter? So where we're at in the Ezekiel here is a place where there's a long description of what the millennial temple looks like. You can get caught up in the dimensions and try and picture the temple and all that. But really what we want to do today is focus on the fact that God had the priesthood in place for a reason. And that was that they would be a living illustration of guiding people to understand the seriousness of sin, God's holiness, and and then other people to want to enter into relationship with God. So that's the big thing to focus on as we talk about Ezekiel chapter 42. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you guys want to grab your seat and if you grab a Bible or whatever it is you're using and go to Ezekiel chapter 42, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, I'm going to jump right into it. Sometimes I'll share some announcement that you probably missed when you weren't here on time, but um, you can just read your bulletin. Um, But uh, so where we're going to be in Ezekiel 42 is uh, we're kind of at a point in the book where Ezekiel is sharing hope to the exiles, okay? We're going to talk about priesthood, but I also want to give you some context so that you can kind of understand what is going on in what I'm reading right now and why did God have him record it, okay? And so what Ezekiel is doing is he is at a point in this book where he is providing hope to the exiles, okay? So these people, they have lost their nation, they've lost their land, uh, they've, they've lost pretty much everything that's important to me, they're, they're, they're important to me, important to them, their own homes. Um, they would have lost loved ones in this process as well. So as Babylon conquered Jerusalem, they would have definitely, there would have been a big loss of life. Um, and so all of this has taken place to them and they're, they're just really beat up. Um, and now they're living in a land that is not their own and he's going to provide hope to them. Okay. Uh, now, one of the people I love to just kind of go back and read his quotes is Yogi Berra. If you're not familiar, he had a way of saying things that were both true and nonsensical at the same time. Um, and they're, they're funny, but one such line was the future ain't what it used to be. Um, and they definitely felt that they definitely felt the future ain't what it used to be. And I think some of us feel that right now. Um, I actually think that as Americans within the, the, Christians within America, uh, we are becoming the exile. Um, I, I think that, that more and more that is the case. If you follow Jesus and you take Christianity seriously, um, you, are, you, are, you are the exile. I am the exile. Um, and so I think that having hope for the future is really important. Um, uh, you know, and, and things are changing quickly. What we, uh, kind of what we, what we value and, and the way that we understand our currency and all these different things are changing. Uh, Yogi understood that as well. He said a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Um, and, uh, just the world around us is changing so quickly. Um, and I would say that the, the Christian worldview that pretty much held sway in this nation for the first couple hundred years, it does not hold sway anymore. Um, the, the new moral code is, is a different way of thinking. It is not a godly way of thinking. Um, it embraces that, that people should do what they feel is best. Um, and if, if the, the, the idea is whatever your fleshly desire, whatever your fleshly desire is, you should do it. Um, and that is so anti-biblical because we understand that from a biblical perspective, if we just do what our flesh desires, um, it, it will produce sin. Uh, that's what our well, that's what our flesh does. It has it, it can and it wants to sin. And the message of our society right now is do what your flesh feels. And so the message is go produce sin. Um, that's the land that we live in. And so we need to recognize that. And I also think that we also that it's good to have an idea of what God wants us to do 
while we live in the, in the, on this earth where we are. And so as we read these chapters in Ezekiel, they can kind of sound uh, distant, odd, and unrelated to our life, uh, yet what they contain is truth. And the truth that is, that is in, the, in the scriptures is that God selected a people and called them to be his witnesses. That's the nation of Israel. He called them out to be his witnesses. We also see the truth that these people are corrupted by iniquity, transgression, and sin, and they find themselves incapable of living the life that they're called to and that they are longing for a Messiah. Uh, the truth is that uh, just a just God would deliver his promise to correct wrong living and that he would lovingly deliver them from uh, the consequences of their sin by redeeming and rescuing them. That's the promise that God made to the nation of Israel. And so as we go through this, uh, one of the ways that God told this story was through priesthood. He shared the seriousness of sin um, and God, people's distance from God through the priesthood. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. And under the Mosaic Covenant, so the, the, the um, relationship agreement that God made with, with Moses and the Jewish people, the role of the priesthood was to represent the people to God. Their job was to atone for, sin, for the sins of the people and act as an intermediary between God and humans. Everything they did, said, and wore was to indicate the holiness of God, the sinfulness of people, and the distance between God and people. So everything that God has the priesthood doing, that's what it's about. It's, it's imagery. They were to be a living illustration of the seriousness of sin, um, the sinfulness of people, the holy, and the holiness of God. That's what they were there to do. Then they would perform sacrifices, and these sacrifices and offerings, they, they were done to amplify, again, the seriousness of sin, the cost of redemption, and to provide a picture of what the Messiah would do and who he would be. And so the Jewish people from the Old Testament, they understood that there would be two Messiahs. They understood that there would be a Messiah like Joseph who would come and suffer and die. He would be the suffering servant like Joseph who would come and die and rescue the people from horrible consequences that they were living in. The other Messiah that they looked for was a Messiah like David. And they understood that a Messiah like David would come and he would rule and reign over the nation of Israel and bring peace across the earth. Okay. And so when Jesus came his first time, he came as a Messiah like Joseph. He suffered and died for the consequences consequences of sin so that we could be saved from the ramifications of evil, right? What, 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 what you intended for evil, God used for good. And so that's what Christ did on the cross. The evil that is within each and every one of us, he bore that on himself. He absorbed our evil so that we could be righteous again. And that's what, so that's what he did. But they were also looking for a Messiah like David, and so one of the things that we see is that this Mosaic Covenant, unlike the Abrahamic and Davidic Covenants, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. Okay, so God made the promises to Abraham and David, and he said, I'm going to do this. Uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, he said, I'm going to do this, but he also said, but if you live in unfaithful disobedience, there will be consequences. I will punish you for unfaithful disobedience. Okay, if you live in faithful obedience, you're going to experience life. But if you live in unfaithful disobedience, I will take away your place and your nation and you will lose what you have. In fact, there are places in the book of Ezekiel where if you were to read a chapter of Ezekiel and a cha chapter of Leviticus side by side, you can see that Ezekiel is just sharing that God promised that if you lived unfaithfully, he would do this, 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 and this. And now you've lived unfaithfully and God is going to do the things that he promised he would do if you lived unfaithfully. And so that's what we see in the book of Ezekiel. It traces the unfaithfulness of the Jews and the promised punishment from God. 
It also traces the glory and presence of the Lord among the people of Jerusalem. So at the beginning of Ezekiel, he has this vision of the, of the chariot with the wheels within the wheels and the cherubim, the angels, and he sees this vision. And then in chapter 11, he sees that chariot leave. It actually leaves Jerusalem. And so what, what, he's, what he's telling the people is that you've been so unfaithful and worshiped other gods. Your idolatry is so huge that you have actually made it so there's not a place for God in your life and he has left. Okay, so the, the, the presence of the glory of the Lord leaves Jerusalem. Uh, so God's departure from them, their judgment and the reasons therefore, and there's a whole lot of passages or, or chapters on that. Then you have the judgment of foreign nations, and then there's promises to restore the Jews to their lands, promises to bless the surrounding nations and judge them. There's actually, God's gonna bless the surrounding nations through Israel. And then there's finally the promises of the future restoration of the people, the temple, and the return of the glory of the Lord. And that's the section we're in right now, is where an angel shows up to Ezekiel, and he's got some uh, measuring rods, and he's, he's bronze. Um, I don't know if you guys thought of this, but like when he described him as this bronze angel, I was like, well, that was probably me when I was a teenager. You know, all that sun I used to get, nice and bronze. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, so this angel shows up, and he's telling him about the future restoration of the people, what the temple in the millennial kingdom will be like. And he's going to tell them the next chapter, next week when we look at this, we're going to see the return of the glory of the Lord to this temple. And so what God has been doing and what it is Ezekiel has been revealing is what God will do before he brings the nation of Israel back to Jerusalem. Okay, and we also know from the scriptures that uh, during the seven-year tribulation, that one of the major things, the major thing that God does during the seven-year tribulation is draw the Jewish people back into relationship with him. We also know that there's, a, a, that there's major changes to the earth, to its geography. Um, this temple that I'm going to describe, if you were to try and lay it out somewhere in Jerusalem right now, there's nowhere it would fit. Um, and so the, 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 the geography of, of the whole world, but in particular Jerusalem, is going to change before this can take place. And if you read about the different earthquakes and hailstorms, all the different things that happen in uh, the book of Revelation during that tribulation, you can understand how the world would change in that way. Um, the other thing we know from Isaiah chapter 11 is that the earth in part, but a major part, will be redeemed at that point in time. Uh, that the, the consequences of sin and the curse will be very different than we understand them now when this millennial reign takes place. Okay, So there's all these changes that that are taking place to the earth, to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people before this happens. But what God is promising, and I think this is really important, is that God is promising that he will fulfill what he said he would do for the, for the Jewish people. Okay, And so when we read the Bible, we have to understand, here's, here's the big picture of what's going on on this earth, is that for right now, uh, the, the, the Jewish nation is not how God is acting. He's not acting through them. Uh, and if you were to understand Jesus' first advent, he went around proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, but the Jews rejected both the king and the kingdom. So he went around, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what did the Jewish people do? They killed him, right? They crucified him. So they, they rejected both the king and his kingdom. They rejected the Messiah. Uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Holy Week, he cursed a fruitless fig tree as a picture of the continuing faithlessness of Israel into his day. Ezekiel's prophecies of a day when Israel will recognize her cheating ways, be ashamed, and turn back to God, these are things that are still future and yet to come at Jesus' second coming. Okay, so God is going to fulfill these promises that he made to Abraham and David, but he has not done them yet for the nation of Israel. There's something that when he comes as a Messiah like David, they will be fulfilled. Okay, 
So all that said, as we study this passage, you have to see the Jewishness of it. Everything in it is very Jewish. Um, and so as I read it, we're also going to, we're going to play, I don't know if the rendering's up. No, it's not up there yet. We're going to, you guys kept looking. I was like, there's something distracting back there. Um, as, as we, uh, as I read this, we're going to play this rendering from bibliaprints.com. It'll be up on the background. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, a rendering is worth 447. Um, so I'm going to read the whole way through the chapter and then we're going to discuss it. But before I do, let me pray. So, Father, we do thank you that we can gather together. We thank you for the freedom to be here together. We thank you that uh, uh, we, have, we have your word, that it, you have secured it, through it for us throughout history. Um, even this book of Ezekiel that uh, almost didn't make the Bible. Uh, the Jewish people almost left it out because there's so many differences between what they understood about the, the, the sacrificial system and how it's done here in this chapter. It, you know, it almost got left out. So we thank you that you've secured it, that this truth is here for us. And uh, that we can know you. Ultimately, that's what this is about, is understanding your person, your work, um, your character, your faithfulness. Uh, when you make a promise, it's not maybe or if, but when you're going to do it. And so we thank you for that. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So pick up in verse 1 here. It says, Then a man led me out by the way of the north gate into the outer court. He brought me to a group of chambers opposite the temple yard and opposite the building to the north. Along the length of the chambers, which was 175 feet, there was an entrance on the north. The width was 87 and a half feet. Opposite the 35-foot space belonging to the inner court and opposite the paved surface belonging to the outer court, the structure rose gallery by gallery in three tiers. In front of the chambers was a walkway towards the inside, 17 and a half feet wide and 175 feet long and their entrances were on the north. The upper chambers were narrow, narrower because the galleries took away more space from them than from the lower and middle stories of the building. For they were arranged in three stories and had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper chambers were set back from the ground more than the lower and middle stories. A wall on the outside ran, from, ran in front of the chambers parallel to them towards the outer court. It was 87 and a half feet long. For the chambers on the outer court were 87 and a half feet long, while those facing the great wall were 100, great hall were 175 feet long. At the base of these chambers was an entryway on the east side as it enters from the outer court. In the thickness of the wall of the court towards the south, there were chambers facing the temple yard and the western building, with a passageway in front of them, just like the chambers that face north. Their length and width, as well as their exits, measurements, and entrances were identical. The entrance at the beginning of the passageway, the one in front of the corresponding wall as one enters on the east side, was similar to the entrances of the chambers that were on the south side. Then the man said to me, the northern and southern chambers that face the courtyard are holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord will eat the most holy offerings. There they will deposit the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings, for the place is holy." The priests, once, excuse me, once the priests have entered, they are not to go out from the holy area to the outer court until they have removed the clothes they minister in, for these are holy. They are to put on other clothes before they approach the public area. When he finished measuring the inside of the temple complex, he led me out by the way of the gate that faced to the east and measured all around the complex. He measured the east side with a measuring rod. It was 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the north side. It was 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the south side. It was 875 feet by the measuring rod. 
He turned to the west side and measured 875 feet by the measuring rod. He measured the temple complex on all four sides. It had a wall around it, 875 feet long and 875 feet wide to separate the common from the holy. So what he's talking about here in this passage is the the priest chambers for dining and storing clothing. Um, and they, it was also a place where they would store uh, the offerings that were given. So the priest's job is so all-encompassing that God set a portion of the sacrifices uh, as food for the priests. And this is something that they did under the Mosaic Covenant. The people would come, they'd sacrifice the animal, and then they would basically have kind of a big feast, so to speak, every Sabbath uh, that, that, that these sacrifices took place. Okay, so and then the, the priest's closing was understood to be unique and different as a picture of the unique and holy work they bef- they perform on behalf of the people. And so he's describing what the priesthood uh, is going to do a little bit, and he's describing where the priesthood keeps different things in this temple. Uh, the temple is similar to previous temples that have been built, but it is very different as well. Um, as I said a moment ago, it it the book of Ezekiel almost didn't make the canon because the sacrificial system the the way it's described and the temple itself are so different from the Levitical system that the rabbis of the time went, we don't understand this, this couldn't be right. And they almost left the book out, okay? And the reason why it is so different is because God is going to use the sacrificial systems for a similar but different purpose, okay? And we're gonna get into that more in a minute. But the, it's, it's similar but different, all right? And so they, they almost left this book out of the Bible because it is so different than what they understood about the Levitical system. Okay, um, but the priests, they still have a similar role, but it's, but it's a little bit different again. We also understand that the sacrificial system is going to be brought about once again during this millennial reign of Jesus. Um, uh, Zechariah chapter six talks about when, when, the, when the Messiah comes the second time, that he is going to fulfill both the role of king and priest. And so one of the reasons why it's so different is because uh, there's going to be a, a very different high priest than there ever has been before in, in, in the Jewish temple system, and his name will be Jesus. Um, he will be acting as both king and the priest. And so the sacrificial system, when they do it, the point of the, the, the sacrificial system for the, for the Jews during Moses' time, during Ezekiel's time, was to point forward to the Messiah and how he would sacrifice himself and die on their behalf. What's going to happen is that uh, thousands of years have gone by where, Jesus, where, where God has not been using the Jewish people um, as his mode of displaying his character to the world. And the reason he, he's doing that is because of their unfaithfulness, but he's gonna do it again uh, here during this millennial period, this this will be one of the major ways that God reveals who he is to the world is through the Jewish people once again. Um, and the sacrificial system at that point will point back to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. So instead of pointing forward, these are things that are gonna be done in memorial of uh, what Jesus did in his first coming. And I think that the Jewish people are gonna be like, wow, we didn't understand this for at least 2,000 years. Like if Jesus comes back this afternoon, at least 2,000 years, um, but he might, he might wait a couple more thousand years. So they're gonna go, thousands of years have gone by where we did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah and now he's showing up and revealing it to us in a way that just will be mind boggling to them. He's gonna use the sacrificial system to point back to his first coming and they're gonna go, wow, how did we miss this? It's going to be eye-opening and mind-boggling to them. Um, the other thing that, uh, that we see here, we have three different kinds of offerings. It says that there's going to be a grain offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Uh, the understanding of the grain offering, uh, you, can, you could read Leviticus chapter 2. This was an offering that accompanied 
these other types of offerings, um, but it could also be done alone. It was done as a memorial of God's works and was considered a pleasing aroma to him. So they would take something that we would consider kind of like a cereal, uh, they pour oil on it, and then they would burn that. And it was considered a pleasing aroma to God, and they would do it in remembrance of something that God had done. Uh, if you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, you have the second giving of the Ten Commandments. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, you kind of have God explaining why this is important and how they're to pass it on to the next generation. And one of the lines that's in that chapter is he says, when your sons ask, why do we do these things? Tell them that it's in remembrance of how God brought us out of Egypt and saved us from slavery and gave us a nation. And so they were to obey and honor God because of who he is and what he's done. That was the, mo he said, your motivation in obedience is who God is and what he's done in the past. And so these memorial sacrifices, uh, this grain offering was done in that way. Um, and so you, you kind of wonder, like, if you were to wander outside today and, and get some, uh, I don't know, what would you use? Um, frosted flakes? I don't know. And pour some oil on it and burn it. What, what promises would you be considering? Like, what, what would you be remembering about how God has acted for you? Uh, maybe you'd remember your previous life and how he's drawn you out of sin. And, and you look back at the history of your life and you go, man, I used to really struggle with this thing and I had no life and no victory over it. But now that I'm in Christ and his spirit indwells me, I, I'm moving down this road. And man, look what he has done for me in the course of the last five or 10 years. Uh, just look how different he's making me. And maybe that would be your memorial. Uh, he's, given us, he's given us communion, which we're gonna take a little, in a little bit here. He's given us communion as a memorial to help us remember Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his body broken and his blood spilled for us. And so the grain offering was similar in that way. The sin offering in Leviticus chapter four and five is an offering satisfying the requirements of the law for moral failures. So God says, you know, here's the 10 commandments, but on top of the 10 commandments, I'm gonna define, I'm gonna define, uh, I'm gonna define life for you. This is what it is to live a life that pleases God. And so he defines that for us. And then there are places where we break God's moral law and we have moral failures. Um, and this, these sacrifices were done to satisfy the requirements of the law for those moral failures. Um, you blow it, you go, man, I know that wasn't right. And then they would go and they would actually lay their hand on the animal's head and, and, and cut its throat. It would lose its life. Um, and they understood the seriousness of sin through that, that, that by they were transferring their sin to that animal um, and it was taking the consequences of their guilt for their moral failures. What it was really doing was pointing forward to how Jesus would be that lamb that would uh, take all of our moral failures. The guilt offering in Leviticus 6 was an offering satisfying the requirements of the law to make restitution for defrauding another person or God. And so there would be occasions where uh, you, you, maybe you make a business deal and you sell something um, and, and you, you, uh, you kind of lie about the price or you cheat about the payment and they would do a, they would do a sacrifice for, for defrauding that person. Uh, they would also do a sacrifice like this for defrauding God of who he is. Um, so uh, that would be an occasion where they represented God as something that he was not, and they would go and make a sacrifice like this for defrauding um, the person of God. And so you look at these offerings, and, and you see that what they're really there to deal with is they're there to deal with the human condition. 
okay? Uh, we're forgetful and we don't remember what God has done for us. So this grain offering is there for us to remember and renew our minds, okay? That's what that sacrifice is about. The sin offering is there for uh, Exodus chapter 34. If you don't know these verses, I encourage you to, to memorize them or, or at least know where they are in the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. You learn a lot about God's character, but you also learn what sin is, okay? And so there's three words in, the, in that verse. There's iniquity, transgression, and sin. And iniquity means bent or crooked, okay? And so when God made us, when he made humanity, he made us in his image. He, he gave his virtue and his character to us. And then what happens is evil enters the picture and that, that original virtue and character that God gives us, it becomes bent and crooked. Okay, And so we're not as God intended us to be. We're still in the image of God, but the image of God that we have is not what it's supposed to be. It's bent, it's crooked. That's the word for iniquity. The idea is that at our core and in our nature, we are not as we're supposed to be. We're bent or crooked. And so when, when you deal with something like the guilt offering or the sin offering, one of the reasons why they did this was to recognize their brokenness, that, that, we, that they were bent, that they were crooked, that they need to be made whole again. Okay? And when Christ died on the cross, he died so that when, we, when, when, he was, when he died, he died for our man, our old man in Adam. And when he rose from the dead, he raised to give us new life in Christ. And so the picture that's given in Romans chapter six and seven is that we were bent and broken and crooked, but we were placed into Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, we've been made straight again right? Amen. God's made us straight again. He's, he's, he's made us as he's intended us to be. And when we walk by the spirit, Romans chapter eight, verse 11, the, the, the very spirit of God indwells us and he will give life to our mortal flesh. We are not who we once used to be, but because he's in us, he's made us again who we're supposed to be. That original value and virtue that God instilled in us in the image of God, he's restored through us being placed into Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, so that's, that's iniquity. Uh, transgression is, is, can also be, you'll, you'll find it translated rebellion in certain places. And so there's an idea that we're, we're bent and broken. And because of that bent and broken uh, situation, we then approach God as rebels instead of sons. We approach God as, as rebels instead of sons and daughters. And instead of viewing him as the Lord of our life, we say we're going to be the Lord of our own life, which was the original sin in the garden that we could define good and evil for ourselves. And so we rebel against God. And so again, that guilt offering would be a place where we've defrauded the person of God. We, we, we make him out to be something he's not. Our, live demonstrate, our lives demonstrate that he's not Lord, that we are in rebellion. And so that, that guilt offering would have dealt with that. And then sin, so iniquity, transgression, and sin, and sin are the moral failures. And so it says that God is going to, Moses says that God will, not, God will forgive those things, but he's pointing forward to a time when he'll do that, okay? And, and the way that he would do that. But those, those are things that God has to forgive. Every single person that's ever lived needs to be made straight again. They need to be forgiven for their rebellious approach towards God, and they need to be forgiven for their moral, act, or for their moral failures. And that's the glory of the gospel, is I have been made whole, I'm no longer a rebel, and my moral failures are paid for by God. Um, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. He's dealt with all of those things. Uh, the other thing we see in this passage, uh, just the sheer size of the temple, the priest's workplace is enormous. The temple grounds are 765,600. 
625 square feet or 17.5 acres. Um, that's enough space for 13 football fields. I was hoping that it would be enough for 15 football fields because then every game on Sunday an NFL ticket could be just in the temple, but it didn't work. It's a little too small. I don't know. Um, there probably won't be football there, um, but uh, it's enough room for fo 13 football fields. But uh, it's, it's huge. And again, as I said earlier, there's, if you were to try and lay this temple out in Jerusalem right now, there's not a place you could do it. Um, one of the things that we see in, in the tribulation period is that the Antichrist will actually cause a temple to be built in Jerusalem. This is not that temple. The temple that the Antichrist builds and draws the Jewish people back together and then deceives them, that gets destroyed. And then this one gets laid down. So there's some serious changes that are going to happen to Jerusalem. Like what you're looking at right there, um, it's not going to look like that. It's going to be different, okay? Um, but this is a really big place. Uh, and as you look at this, what we've seen is that God is very detailed about what this place is going to look like. He's, he's very concerned with the details of the temple. Um, and if you were to go back and read about when, when God tells Moses how to build the tabernacle, he was super detailed on how they were supposed to do it. And kind of what you draw, draw out of that is that God is very particular about where his presence is going to be. Okay, he's very particular about where his presence is going to be. And what, what he draws up for the Jewish people is the particularity of where God's presence is going to be is in a sinless place. Um, that's, that's what he's making very clear is that his holiness will reside in a sinless place. Okay, And so that's what all these things that the priesthood were doing pointed, pointed to. Um, and so on your handout, if you were to look at the Old Testament priests, or mosaic, you could say, were a divinely chosen and appointed person that, to transact with God on behalf of the people. They were selected from the tribe of Levi, and they performed animal sacrifices pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They were witnesses of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. They interceded on behalf of people to God in the temple and at the mercy seat for peace and atonement with God. Uh, I'm going to say that word atonement a few more times as we go through this. And what you have to think of with atonement, atonement or propitiation, either of those words are biblical words. The idea is that uh, just like if, if God's house is a kitchen, um, we have spilled iniquity, transgression, and sin all over the floor. It's just everywhere. Okay, it's all over the place. It's just a mess. All right, it's like you let your seven-year-old loose with the flour, sugar, and and milk. It's just everywhere, right? And so that's what we've done to the world with iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's just everywhere. And so what God says is He's He's going to forgive that, but in order for for forgive it, He has to deal with it. So in the middle of your kitchen is a rug, and you pull up the rug, and you're like, let's just sweep iniquity, transgression, and sin under there and lay that down. Man, it sure stinks in here, but we're just going to keep doing it, right? And so that's not what God does with it. He, he actually cleans the mess up. He, he comes in and he cleans the mess of iniquity, transgression, and sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. That's not justice. But because he's a just God, the penalty of that mess has to be dealt with. The mess has to be cleaned up. And that's why Christ went to the cross, to clean up and absorb the mess. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He absorbed the mess. Our mess, your mess, my mess. He absorbed it so that we could be right. And so that's why this is such, so it's such an important thing, this peace and atonement with God. Now the New Testament priests, um, every believer has access to God through Christ who mediates for them. So Christ is our, our priest on our behalf. We'll talk about him more in a second. We perform the spiritual sacrifice of offering our bodies to God for his use. That's Romans 12. Uh, 
We are witnesses to the person and work of Jesus in all areas of our life and pass the gospel to the next generation. That Deuteronomy chapter 6 passage was all about the Jewish people passing the truth of who God is and what he had done to their children. And what we read in 2 Timothy 2 is that the church is to be made up of people who then pass They hear the message and they pass that message on to other faithful people who will share that message with the next generation. So a huge component of who we are as a church is passing the gospel to the next generation so that they can do the same. And so we make sure that we maintain biblical truth, the authority of the apostles and the authority of scripture in our lives is huge. We don't let the world infiltrate what we believe about the Bible, but we pass on the faithful message of who Jesus is and what he has done, what his version of morality is like, what his version of Eternal life is like, not his version, but the only one, right? The unaltered truth of who God is and what he has done, we pass that to the next generation. That's a huge part of who the church is to be, okay? We keep doing that over and over and over again until Christ returns. And then the last part there, we intercede on behalf of others with, or on others' behalf with prayers and petitions to God. That's Ephesians 6 uh, at the end of spiritual warfare. He, Paul asked that people would do that for him. There's so many other places I could show you where that's the case. But we're to, we're to say, God, we really care about this person and, and boy, we want to see you act in their life in this way. And I pray that you would soften their hearts so that they would receive you. And I pray that if you have something for me to say to this individual that's a part of that, that you would use me to do that. Or God, I have this fellow believer and they're really struggling with the circumstances of their life and I pray that you would get their eyes off of their circumstances and onto you and you, you pray for people you care about them now the millennial priest is a divinely chosen and appointed person to transact with God on behalf of people very similar they will, they will be selected from the tribe of Levi and more specifically the line of Zadok that's Ezekiel's family line they will perform animal sacrifices pointing backward to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross they will be witnesses to the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. They will intercede on behalf of people to God in the temple and at the mercy seat for peace as an act of remembrance of the atonement brought about by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So they're going to say, we already have atonement. The sacrifices are just reminding us of that. That's what the millennial sacrifices and the millennial priests will do. Now, Jesus, he is our great high priest who loved us so much that he sacrificed himself on our behalf that we might not perish but have eternal life. So instead of offering the sacrifices of animals, the great high priest, the, the Jesus that we, that we love and worship because he first loved us, he sacrificed himself for us. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ, when he came, he, he came as that suffering servant like Joseph, Joseph, and he died on the cross as the lamb of God, God absorbing our sin. And he, instead of giving the blood of animals, he gave his own blood. He died on our behalf. He is the ultimate witness of God's person and work. Uh, John 1.14 says, says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled. Uh, he, he, the word became flesh and acted as a temple among us. He walked around as the hot spot of God's presence and glory so that we could understand the, the plan of salvation come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. It's unbelievable what he did for us. He is always making intercession on our behalf, drawing, I think the word us didn't make your hand out, drawing us near to God and credits our account with his righteousness. Uh, you think about that. If, if I had to stand before God and say, uh, and this is what most religions do. If I had to stand before God and say, you know, I belong in heaven. I belong in your presence because of, and then you start listing your good works. 
And he'd be like, wait a minute. Iniquity, you're bent and broken. Transgression, you're a rebel. You won't acknowledge that I'm God. And you have moral failure over and over and over again. Yeah, but I did. Nope, sorry. Bent, crooked, rebel, moral failure. But I did. Nope. Bent, crooked, moral failure. And you walk away with your shoulders down going, man. But God accounts to our, or he, he, he credits our account with Jesus' righteousness. The, the, the true Adam, the true man, who when faced with sin and temptation didn't give in to it. The true Adam, the true man, who followed the Spirit's lead each and every way that he went. The true Adam, the true man, who when faced with anxiety and depression and fear about the cross said, not my will be done, but yours. His righteousness is credited to our account. And so when we stand before God, it's not a question of does my, do my moral good outweigh my moral fail, failures. The question is, I've trusted in the person and work of your son Jesus. And he says, awesome, you're in. And that's what Christ has done for us. And so you look at this passage and you say, how do I apply this? And I think the first way that we apply this is by understanding that God is a promise keeper and will fulfill his national promises to Israel. Um, when, when he says that he's going to give Israel, and, and in the Abrahamic covenant, he told Abraham, I'm going to give you from uh, the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates, and they've never possessed all that land. And I'm going to give you north to south. He's, they, the, the people have never possessed all that land. He promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. The seed took place. The blessing is Jesus. If we've, uh, the ultimate blessing to all the nations is the person of Jesus, that he is of the line, he's a descendant of Abraham, and if I have faith in him, I am part of Abraham's family. But that land blessing has never been fulfilled. Um, and he's gonna do that in the millennial time. Um, when he told David that you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a, 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 someone's gonna come from your line and they're gonna rule and reign forever, you know what he told, what the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter one? He said, it's now. Your baby's that one. He is the one who's gonna, who's gonna receive and bring, to, bring about all the promises that I made to David. He's gonna make it happen. And he hasn't done it yet. So when he returns, he's going to. Right? That's, that's, that's true stuff. The other part of this is he will fulfill his promises that he's made to you. What promises of God are you leaning on? Uh, in this time where we are living more and more as exiles, what promises are you leaning on? The second one there is that the role of priest is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus shares that role with all those who believe in him. And so then you ask, how am I laying my life down and offering my body to Jesus for his purposes? What does that look like in my daily life? And so, what this looks like is you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I, I believe in you, I trust you. And because I believe in you and I trust you, this day is yours, uh, this body is yours to use this day. As Jesus told us to take up our cross daily, that we remember every day that our life is not our own, but that it belongs to him, that we've been purchased with a price and we are not our own, but we belong to him. We say, so God, since I belong to you, since I'm your child and I'm your son, then my body is yours each and every day. And so what I want to do today, God, is I want you, I want to be your servant and I want you to use me to bless people. I want to be your servant and I want to live up to your moral standards. I want to be your servant and I want to be a hot spot of your presence today. I want to be your servant and bless those around me. 
Okay, And this isn't something you can do casually. I shared with the guys on Monday night, I think one of the greatest barriers between Christianity being what God intends it to be and what it is in America is the casual nature that we approach it with. I, I think one of the biggest barriers between Christianity being everything that it can be in our lives and in this nation is discipline. Uh, we wake up every day and we say, God, my life is yours. My body is yours. And I'm going to live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, I'm going to offer my body to you as a spiritual sacrifice. And I'm going to renew my mind based upon your principles so that I wouldn't be transformed by the, that I'd be transformed, that I wouldn't be conformed to this world, but it'd be transformed to yours. I want to be uh, like I'm giving myself to you daily. And I'm not going to allow what the world says to be true about sexuality infiltrate the way that I think about it. And I'm not going to allow the world's version of, of, of gender influence the way that I think of it. You made a male and female. It's not that complicated. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Am I going to care about people that are confused? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I will not allow those things to change the way that I understand truth. Okay? And that's what we're called to as believers. Do we love people that don't understand the truth? Yes, that's why we're here. We're to be an illustration. Like if you think about priesthood, and he says that we're priests. First Peter chapter 2 talks about us being, or maybe it's chapter 1. You can bug me later. Uh, we're, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so he's made us priests. He also says that we're being built into a spiritual house, that we are living stones. And everywhere we go is intended to be an illustration of the living God. We are a living illustration. That's what the priesthood was. They were a living illustration. My life is supposed to be a living illustration of what it is to have relationship with God. And so the other thing that means is that God, when I mess up, not if, when I walk out of line with your spirit, I'm gonna confess that, I'm gonna agree with you that I just failed, that I, that I walked out my own bent, crooked, rebellious nature Instead of trusting you, I walked out the old man and I'm, and I'm gonna agree with you that that's not who I am anymore, but I am new in Christ and I'm gonna then be restored to right relationship with you. First John 1, 9, if you don't know it, read it and read it again. He's faithful and righteous. If we confess, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to make us right again. He does it every time. And so even when we blow it, this is, this is, this is the glory of, what, of the life that we live in, is God doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect that when we miss perfection, we say, I blew it. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna return to this relationship with God. That would be the second part of that, that. How am I living as a witness to the seriousness of sin and the glory of God's plan of salvation? Um, do I take sin lightly and brush it off? Do I allow it to fester in my life without confessing it? And then the last one there is how am I living as an intercessory prayer warrior for those in my life? Who should I be praying for regularly and how should I be praying for them? And the, the story that just always comes to mind for me is, is uh, in my life, uh, I grew up believing that God was a rule keeper. That's, that's, I just thought God's a rule keeper. Um, and um, turns out I'm not really a good one of those. Um, I, I, I tend to break the rules, especially when I don't understand why they're there. If you give me a rule and say, follow it, 
and I say why, and you say cuz, I'll be like, oh, I'm breaking that one. Because um, I got to find out why it matters. Um, you know, that's just kind of the way I'm wired. And so I, I lived that teenage period, and into my, my teenage years were, were a time of, I tried to be the good boy, and I couldn't do it, and so I'm going to go figure out why these rules matter. Um, and so I lived in that time of rebellion. Um, and during that time of rebellion, that's, here's the point of this story. During the, that time, I actually forgot while I was telling it. Um, during that time of rebellion, um, my grandma kept a prayer journal. I didn't know she kept it, but later in life after she had passed away, um, I got to see some of the pages where she was praying for me during that time. Um, and that's, that's special, that's powerful. And I think the other thing is we just recognize that that's who we are. Like we're, we're, I'm not much of a journal keeper, but if you are, keep it. But there needs to be something set aside in your day where you say, I'm praying for my wife and I'm praying for my kids and I'm praying for my coworkers and I'm praying, whoever it is that God lays on your heart, you're saying, this is what I see going on and God, I pray that you would bring this about and if you want to use me to help do that, then uh, you know, give me the words to say. But I also recognize, and, and I think, as I think about my grandmother, the one thing that she was is she was a living illustration of what it was to walk with Jesus. In fact, at her funeral, uh, my wife, and I'm probably going to cry, but she said, I want to be like Grammy Bonnie, not because I want to be like Grammy Bonnie, but because I want to be like Jesus. She was that living illustration. And so who are you that living illustration to? That's the priesthood that we're called to. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for our time in, uh, in your scripture. We thank you that you are a promise keeper that when you say you're going to do something, it is not if or when, or not if or maybe, but when you will bring it about. And so as we view history through your lens, when we have this eternal perspective where you've, you've chosen to give us the end of the story, not every detail, but you have chosen to give us the end of the story, we look forward to your return. Uh, we look forward to your rule and reign and how you will draw all people back to you through uh, your millennial reign here on earth. Uh, we recognize that sin will still be a part of that and there will be an ultimate judgment of sin later. Um, but uh, sin and death are something that you have conquered in, in our lives. Uh, that, that phrase, uh, Tony said today that Burl had passed away and that phrase passed away, it, it's actually a biblical phrase. I don't know, if, but it means, it means that we've transitioned from one place to another. And so Burl has transitioned from her earthly life to uh, the, uh, the, the abode of God. She's with you face to face. Um, she has passed away. She's transitioned from here to there. What a wonderful thing. And so we recognize that, that this world will pass away uh, that it will transition from its sinful, broken state to something new and glorious. Uh, I recognize that I will pass away in that way as well, that sin will be eradicated from my body and I'll receive a new and resurrected body uh, that sin will not dwell in. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, and, uh, and, and God, we just look forward to that eternal picture that you've given us. But you leave us here now as your priests. You leave us here now as your representatives, living illustrations of what it is to be a hotspot of the eternal God. And I pray that we would live that out day in and day out with gratefulness um, and, and, uh, and discipline. In Jesus' name, amen.
Today, you have been listening to our series, Kingdom Come, where we have been discussing Ezekiel's vision for the Millennial Temple and what that means in our lives today. We pray that you are both challenged and encouraged by God's Word. Join us again next week as we dive into the glory of God and how He shows up in our lives. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are part of the family. 